0: Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast Mining the Riches of the Parsha where we discuss, using classic and modern sources the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life So I have three things to share with you tonight The first one is based on a lecture by Rabbi Yisrael Reisman Let's start on page 856 this week's parsha is the parsha of Balak. Balak is the king of a nation called Moab, the Moabites that is located on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, part of the area that is now Jordan, and the Jewish people are making their final approach to the land of Israel at the end of 40 years in the desert. And they're approaching from the east. And so, uh, between them and Israel is uh, Moab. So, along with a couple of other nations, north to south, on the eastern bank of the Jordan. So, the king of Moab, Balak, hears about the Jewish people coming. Pasuk number two, uh, I'm sorry, number three, Pasuk Gimel, and they're very frightened. They're very frightened because the Jews are numerous. And Moab was uh, uh, disgusted or upset that the Jewish people were approaching. It could be that Bullock and his people thought that the Jewish people were actually going to conquer his land. Of course, we know from their experience with some of the other nations, they didn't want the land on the eastern bank. They wanted to go into Israel. All they wanted was to pass through peacefully, without bothering anybody. But but Bullock and his uh, citizens were very, very frightened. So Bullock comes up with a military strategy. In the history of military strategy, nobody has come up with this plan. And the plan is... Pasuk number hey number five, by Malachim El Bilam ben He sends messengers to Bilam. Now Bilam is a non-Jewish prophet. That means a person to whom God speaks. And the reason that he sent uh, emissaries to him, Likrolo Lamar, This nation left Egypt and they're coming towards us. Pasuk number 6. Here's what I want you to do. I want to hire you to curse this nation coming towards us ki atzum humi many because they're too strong for us, they're too numerous for us, ulai ukal na keba va garshen maybe you will be able, by cursing them, to uh, wound them, and we'll be able to repel them from our land. We'll be successful in our military goal of repelling them from our land if you curse them. Ki because I know. Says says the Says Balak. Whoever you bless will be blessed. you are, and whoever you curse will be cursed. So it's really quite amazing that you have this uh, Balak, a pagan king of a pagan nation. They worship idols. And he wants to defeat the Jewish people. And so his complete and entire and exclusive strategy relies on Prayer. We're going to get someone to it. That's what he says. Again, unique in the world of military strategy, in the history of military strategy. We're going to rely on prayer. So let me start with two questions. The first question is, God is taking the Jewish people out of Egypt to Israel. He promised them that he was taking them to Israel. Yes, it's true they were delayed a total of 40 years, but Hashem did promise. If somebody prays to God, don't let them through, let us be able to defeat them in battle before they get to Israel, would God listen to such a prayer? Would it, would it have any effect? And number two, is there in fact any value to such a prayer? Does that change anything? Does that, a prayer of a non-believer, right? Someone who is wor- worships idols, is praying for something that, okay, I'm biased because I'm a Jewish person. It's not such a nice prayer to pray to curse us is there any value or meaning or significance to such a prayer that it even makes sense as a strategy? Well, is, is he expected to be praying to the God of the Hebrews? Yes, to the God creator of heaven and earth. <laughs> so here's the strange thing. The answer to those, both of those questions is Yes. Yes. God might have heeded such a prayer, and such a prayer has value. And let me take a few minutes to try to explain that. God actually did respond to such a prayer, exactly such a prayer. When Stalin, when the Germans were about to, they thought that the Germans would be successful in Stalingrad and then would come to Moscow, Stalin begged the Jewish people to pray to their God that they wouldn't be successful. Uh, Okay, first of all, that's an amazing thing, yes. But that's the Jewish people who believe in God praying for something that, again, I'm biased, is something that is helpful to the Jewish people. Here you have people that don't believe in God that are going to pray for something that is against the Jewish people. How does that make any sense? Yes? The other thing that... I'm asking is where is God in all this well obviously yes 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 I mean that's that is understood as part of these two questions where is God in all this yes well yeah at the beginning I mean he, he's he's promised things and he knows he has a plan for for people and and here comes this guy out of nowhere that, oh, right that is right uh, okay so let's so let's try to answer these two questions There are two aspects or layers of prayer. And the truth is they operate independently from each other. And this is something that is a very, very practical issue in the life of anyone who ever prays. And it's something that is extremely important to understand for our own prayers. And that's the reason I'm sharing it with you tonight. So, There are two aspects of prayer. One aspect of prayer, which I think is the one that most people think about, the most intuitive aspect of prayer, is called She'elas Tzrochim. We ask God for things. We ask God for what we need. If we don't think we're so smart, we ask God for knowledge. If we're not so healthy, we ask God for healing, for good health. If we need help with Parnassa, with sustenance, we ask God for help with sustenance, with Parnassa, etc. 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 And when we do that, we assert, and this is a fundamental belief of Judaism, we assert that God is a shomeat fila, one who hears our prayers. That is in fact One of the ways that we refer to God in our prayers and elsewhere. God is one who hears our prayers. Now, of course, of course, there's no guarantee. There's a guarantee that God hears our prayers. There's no guarantee that the answer is going to be yes. First of all, presumably, There are other factors that go into God's decision outside of my request. Just uh, uh, hypothesizing, maybe what I'm asking for is not really the best thing for me. Maybe what I'm asking for is not the way God wants it to go as part of his plan. And of course, there's a, a whole list of reasons that we're not able to understand because the nature of the world is God does not give us the feedback of why He doesn't appear to do sometimes what we ask Him to do. But, and this is a fundamental, but prayer has the potential to achieve the result that we're praying for. And this is a truth that goes back to the absolute beginnings of our history. Avraham, Abraham prayed to save the inhabitants of Sodom. Well, how did that prayer turn out? Well, depends how you look at it. Uh, Abraham prayed, if there are ten righteous people, save the city. God agreed. Turned out that there were not ten righteous people, so they all got wiped out. So, I'm not sure if you call that a win or a loss. Okay. (laughs) Yitzchak prayed for a suitable wife. Well, he married Rivka. I would say that's a pretty successful prayer. Yaakov prayed that God should protect him and provide for him. And God did protect him and provided for him. So, Based on historical precedent, based on our belief, based on the promises that the Torah makes, we pray for what we need. And God heard the crying out of the Hebrew slaves in Egypt. Yes, 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 yes. And there are a lot of prayers that God, I, I, it's probably not correct to say, did not hear, but that God heard, but did not hear. Agree with, and of course there are many of those that we're just not able to understand. Hagar, Hagar in the desert was praying, and she, he heard her. And he heard her, right? No, that's the, I mean, in my mind, this is probably the the, the only one that, aside from the, uh, from, Abraham, we've, Victor and Moses, and nobody else. Uh, well but I mean even in our lives I think that there are if a person is honest if a person is in the habit of praying for things sometimes it, 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 it we get it sometimes we do but in this instance it's not about the prayer it's about God allowing this, uh, this sort of thing to happen well it's whether God is going to respond to this prayer right this is a this, this prophet is being hired by Balak to pray to God that that they should be unsuccessful and that Bullock should be successful in, defeat. in defeating them. So it's a prayer with a specific outcome. But it's a curse rather than prayers. Well, I mean, you know, a between the depending curse. on which side you're on. Well, let's let's hold that question to the side. Um, <clears throat> it'll become clear as we go along. Alright, that's one aspect that I think probably people are familiar with whether you understand it or like it or, or agree with it or believe it but there's a second aspect of prayer. And it is the level or layer or aspect of prayer that we refer to as Avodah. Service to God. It is a way of serving God to recognize that what we have comes from God. Also, what we do not have is coming because of God. That's also true. But that means that God is the source of all good and all blessing, and therefore to ask anything of God Leave aside whether you get it or not. That's not the point in this second aspect, the second layer. That's not the focus. The focus is on the way in which I am involved in serving God by recognizing that God is present and God is involved in our lives. And what we do have does come from God. I ask God for something I'm saying two things I'm saying God I want that but I'm also saying something else deeper I'm saying I recognize that if I get it it comes from you I recognize that you are involved in my life I recognize that you are the source of all blessing like Modani And and according to this second aspect, getting what you ask for is beside the point. It's not even the main purpose. Yes, of course, from our point of view, it is what we are looking for. But what we should also be looking for is this second aspect. Even if you don't give it to me, God, and... Either I, I'm able to say, and I assume you have your reasons for not giving it to me, or if I'm not on that level, I'm 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 disappointed and angry that you didn't give it to me. But at the same time, I'm able to recognize simply asking you for it creates a connection that I recognize that you are the source of all good. Give me an example. Yes? Question: How do you recognize that God was absent during the Holocaust? That's that. Yes, that's a difficult question, and I do not have that answer. That's, that's It's 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 on my it's on my list. I'm I'm promising you, it's on my list. I'll tell you what my father used to answer. My father answered like this: the strongest, the largest, and the worst machinery to kill, to murder, and to eliminate people completely was aimed at us us meaning the Jews we walked through those ovens and through that hell we're here our children are here and our grandchildren are here but unfortunately 6 million of us are not here yes. it, it is, it is it, I, so I'm not able to answer that question ok but let me give you just this, let, me, let me share this example Our rabbis tell the the Torah tells us all of our matriarchs, the four matriarchs, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah, at some point in their life were barren. Were not able to have children when they wanted to have children. So our rabbis tell us an amazing thing. Our rabbis say in the Medrash, why were all of our matriarchs at some point barren, not able to have children? Because God is desirous of the prayers of the righteous. Now, let's hold on one second. What does that mean? If the point of prayer is to get what you're asking for, then withholding it because you didn't ask for it is just cruel. I mean, that's just cruel. I'm not going to give you something because I want you to ask. You mean you could have given it, but just, you didn't want to do it because I didn't ask? That's a reason? So, that's cruel. But, if the point of prayer is creating an awareness of God in our life, creating a relationship with God, if prayer is actually avodah, service to God, then... (coughs) For these women to be the progenitors of the Jewish people, they had to be spiritually prepared. They had to be women who would be worthy of giving birth to the children that would create the Jewish people. And they had to be women who were on the level of recognizing God's presence in their lives. They had to have a relationship with God. So God withholds from them children in order to elicit their prayers, in order to cause them to be worthy of then having those children. Because the purpose of prayer is not just to get what you ask for, it is to become a person with a relationship with God. And, now this is difficult, but it's true. And that is true even if the request is illegitimate. Consider this. Think about what it means for a man who is the king and he is a pagan, he worships idols, to come to the realization that he is in trouble and his nation is in trouble and the only way to save himself and his people is to pray to the one God creator of heaven and earth who is the source of all blessing and all curse just think about that for a minute just think for one minute All right, I'm going to say it about myself. If you want to say it about yourself, it's up to you. I wouldn't assert it to you, but I'll say it about myself. Could I even imagine if for one moment in my life I could reach the level where my prayer was as heartfelt as Bullock's prayer? That I believed in prayer as much as Bullock? He is the Rebbe of what it means to really pray. Because he didn't have that background, he didn't have those beliefs, and somehow he came to this notion: doesn't it's not going to help me if I make my army bigger? It's not going to help me if we train more. It, none of those things are going to help, except if I pray to God, Creator of heaven and earth, as opposed to praying to the pagan gods that he normally yeah. worshipped, or as opposed to getting a few more spears and swords. Mm-hmm. And therefore, as illegitimate as his request is, recognize at least how much faith in God and service to God Balak is demonstrating. So on the level of prayer of getting what you ask for, yeah, it makes sense to say, well, you ask for something that's not good, I'm not going to give it to you. You ask for something to hurt my children, the Jewish people, I'm not going to give it to you. But when you look at prayer on the level of creating a relationship with God, I wish that I had the relationship with God that Bullock apparently had. And that's the sense in which that prayer can be successful and can be heard by God in that it creates this relationship for Bullock. So let me ask you a difficult question. I am sure every one of us, I assume, I shouldn't be sure, I assume every one of us has had the experience (coughs) of praying for something or someone about something that is really, really serious and we pray really, really hard and it doesn't turn out the way we want. How do we respond to that? How emotionally, spiritually, how do how do we respond to that as a religious experience? What are we supposed to do when our prayer in quotation mark fails? So the truth is we have a very clear answer that comes from the book of Tehillim, Psalms written by King David famous line Kaveel Hashem, Trust in God Chazak <laughs> Strengthen yourself and make your heart fortified The Kaveel Hashem and trust in God Interesting verse. Seems a little repetitious. So Rashi in commenting to on this verse explains as follows. Kaveel Hashem Trust in God. If you want something, pray to God. What happens if you don't get it? If you don't get it, here's what you do. <inaudible> Strengthen yourself and fortify your heart. <inaudible> and pray to God another time. In other words, because the purpose of prayer is not just to get what it is that you're asking for. It is not to feel that if we don't get the answer we want that our prayer failed. No, that's not correct. Rather, every sincere prayer is successful in that it serves as our service to God. We recognize that God is involved in our lives. We recognize that everything good comes from God. Every prayer for refuah shleimah, that someone should be healed, is a prayer that says that we recognize that God is Rofei Cholim. God is one who heals. Yes, there are doctors and yes, there are medicines and we're required to go to doctors and take medicines and, and do therapies because that's the intermediary that God uses as his way of bringing about healing when he decides to heal. But it is the recognition that healing ultimately comes from God. And that happens whether, and this is hard to take when it happens whether the person for whom we're praying does get better or God forbid does not get better we have still engaged in a service to God but under most circumstances isn't God the one that made you sick Mm -hmm. if you didn't walk in front of a moving car and you got sick so God made me sick so great he's the healer sorry he's the healer of sick people but he also made you sick Could be. Yes? It's difficult stuff. This is not easy stuff. Because God is not the source of all good. He's the source of everything. 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 Yeah, but I don't think he does But this is what we mean. We do it to ourselves. This is what we mean when we talk about prayer as being a substitute for the sacrifices. There was a time in our history when the Beis Hamikdash was standing the Holy Temple in Jerusalem and Karbano's sacrifices were offered about 2,000 years ago. The Beis Hamikdash was destroyed. Sunday, we begin the period of the three weeks leading up to Tisha B'av, where we commemorate the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash after the temple was destroyed and there were no more sacrifices our sages said our prayers become the substitute for the sacrifices let me ask you a question how do, what's the connection of sacrifices leaving aside what does sacrifices mean and we discussed that one, one week uh, several months ago but leaving aside that question how does whatever, whatever sacrifices are what does prayer have to do with it one is an action, one's words If the only purpose of prayer is to get what I ask for, it doesn't make any sense. Sacrifice is a karban. What does the word karban mean? Karev. It allows us to come closer to God. That's exactly what prayer is. Prayer brings us closer to God by having us recognize that what we have comes from God, that God is in our lives and aware of what happens in our lives, that's bringing us closer to God. That is the sense in which prayers become a meaningful substitute for sacrifices. But if one had to choose between the two as an individual, would you say that one would choose prayer or one would choose sacrifice? well first of all that's a hypothetical question because God is not asking our opinion about that well and and God did not ask us for the sacrifices I don't believe sure yes he did sure the sacrifices are commanded in the Torah the whole book of Ayikra God is commanding us. Yes, it is true that there comes a time in history when God is upset with the Jewish people. We discussed this also one week. God is upset with the Jewish people because after centuries of offering sacrifices, the Jewish people deteriorate spiritually and they come to make the mistake, oh, I can do whatever I want, I just offer a sacrifice and it's okay. And God says, the prophets say, God says, did I ever command you in all these sacrifices? What the prophets mean is, yes, you did command us in the sacrifices, but you commanded us in the sacrifices as, as a way to bring us closer to you, not as a way of giving a bribe or a payoff. And that's when it becomes distorted, and that's when the base image is destroyed. But the way it's supposed to work, and the way it originally worked, is that it was supposed to be meaningful and bring us closer to God. So when we start the this 3 week period that leads up to Tisha B'Av and we think about the destruction of the temple and the exile of the Jewish people and we're going in in just over 3 weeks Tisha B'Av, we're going to sit on the floor and we're going to mourn and cry over something that happened 2000 years ago aren't we used to it by now But the point is that what we lost with the destruction of the temple was precisely our service to God. Our feeling connected to God. And for the time being, the substitute that we have is prayer. We have the potential, the opportunity, to use prayer as a means to bring us closer to God. And that's the sense in which Balak's prayer is both legitimate and meaningful. Thank God it ultimately was not successful. But that's the sense in which it is meaningful. But that also is the sense in which our prayers are meaningful. And when we pray for something, yes, of course, we have the right to think to ourselves, we really want that result. Rufa'enu Hashem, heal us Hashem. We have the right to really want that result. And We may be very, very distraught and disappointed and upset, perhaps angry, if we don't get the result that we want. But we ought to be able to think to ourselves that that does not mean that prayer was a failure if it brought us closer to God, if it allowed us to recognize God's presence in our lives. That's how we need to judge prayer, and that's a lesson that comes from Balaam. Let's look at the next page. So there's a part of this narrative that seems completely extraneous to the narrative, to the storyline. So, okay, Bala comes to Bilam. Will, pur- will you curse the Jewish people? <coughs> Bilam says, well, first he says, no, I can't I can only say what God tells me to say. I can't, I can't promise the outcome. Well, it comes back again with more emissaries. First, God tells him not to go. Then, God says, Okay, go, go. But make sure you only say what I tell you to say. Then, is there on the road? There is this strange thing, page 858, the bottom of the page. Pasuk 21. By Bilam got up in the morning and he saddled his donkey. And he went together with the emissaries from Moab to prepare to curse the Jewish people. Next, page 860. God was upset to him, upset with him that he went and he placed an angel in his path but apparently Bilam was unable to see this angel blocking his path. However, Pasach Gimel 23 but the donkey saw this angel of God, invisible to Bilaam, but visible to the donkey. And the donkey tried to avoid the angel. And in avoiding the angel, the donkey ran into the wall and injured Bilaam's foot. Bilaam is upset. He doesn't see this angel, and so he starts to hit the donkey. Pasuk 27, 27 in the middle of the Pasuk, <speaking in Hebrew> gets very angry, <speaking in Hebrew> he hits the donkey with a stick. Pasuk 28, <speaking in Hebrew> God causes the donkey to be able to speak. What are you doing to me? Why are you hitting me so many times? It's really interesting. I mean, just think to yourself, if your donkey would start to speak to you, <laughs> what would be your first words in response? <laughs> so, 29. <laughs> so Billam said to the donkey, I'm, the reason I'm hitting you is I'm so angry with you, if I have a sword I would plunge it into you because you're running into the wall. Hey. Verse 30, the donkey said I mean, Billam didn't say I didn't know a donkey could talk. Maybe he did say that and just the Torah didn't record it because we don't need to know that. I mean, I don't know. So uh, the, the donkey says to Billam, Well, what do you mean? can't you see? I can't go forward. There's an angel there blocking my path. Top of the next page, 862. Then, Pasuk 31, top of the page, Then at that moment, God opened Bilaam's eyes. And he saw this angel in front of him blocking the way now Bilam understands why the donkey is not moving and then the angel says to Bilam, why are you hitting the donkey? Pasuk 34 By Yomer malach Hashem Bilaam says to the angel of God, Chatasi, I sinned Kilo yodati, I did not know kiata that you, this angel, were blocking the path. If this came I mean, it's a. Was, if this came out from the script of Disney, <coughs> it's just the opposite. It's just the opposite. Dr. Doolittle was written from this. You yeah. understand? This yeah. came first. Then came Dr. Doolittle. Yeah, sure. What is going on? I mean, what, what, what... So it could be, one way to understand this, the point of this section of the narrative, what's the theme here? God is trying to teach Bilam. listen... If you're going to go with those people, I didn't want you to go with those people, but if you're going to go with those people, just understand, you can say what I tell you to say. You're not going to be able to say what I don't want you to say. And let me demonstrate to you that you are not in charge. You do not control what happens. In fact, there's a donkey that can see more than you can see. So don't think that you're actually in control here. You will do and say what I tell you to do and say. Okay? Perhaps there are other interpretations. It's kind of bizarre. But let me focus on one word. Chatusi. Bilaam says, Chotasi. I sinned. Now the next phrase I understand. I'm back in Pasuk Lama Dala 34. That I understand. I didn't know that this angel was in front of me blocking my path because until God opened my eyes, you were invisible to me. That I understand. That's why I hit the donkey. But what does the word chatasi mean? I sinned. What was the sin that Bilum committed? So the Rambam says, the Rambam says, Maimonides, Bilam violated the sin of Tsar Balechayy. Tsar Balechayy means it is a sin to cause unnecessary pain or suffering to an animal. Animal, animal. to an animal. Tsar Ba'alei Now, Tsar Ba'alei Chaim is not one individual mitzvah. It's actually a nexus of numerous mitzvahs. There are numerous individual mitzvahs in the Torah that have as their basis this concept of Tsar Ba'alei Chaim. For example, there's a mitzvah that says if you see an animal struggling under its load, help to put it back up. <coughs> Don't allow an animal to suffer. There's a mitzvah that says if you have an animal that is uh, plowing or working your field, you're not allowed to muzzle the animal to, pre- to prevent it from eating a little bit. Let it eat a little bit as it walks. You're not allowed to do that. There's a mitzvah in the Torah called Kansipor. If you see the mother bird and you want to take away the the baby birds, you don't want to cause pain to the mother bird that it should see that its young is being taken away. Send the mother bird away first before you take the young. There's a mitzvah of the laws of shchita, of kosher slaughter. The whole point of the way that we slaughter animals is to provide the least amount of pain, even when we're taking the lives of the animals. There's a mitzvah in the S.R.S. and Ten Commandments. We're required to allow our animals to rest on Shabbos. And many other mitzvahs. All of these individual commandments are related, are subsumed under this category of Tsar Balichayim. We're not allowed to cause unnecessary pain or suffering to animals. Of course, we are allowed to use animals for necessary human benefit for food. Necessary human benefit would include for medical testing, for example. However, we are required in all such usages to limit the amount of pain as much as possible, and there must be a genuine need I'll give you an example, a practical example. Most halakhic authorities are of the opinion, which I just said a moment ago, animals may be used for medical testing even if it does cause a certain amount of suffering or pain, but it is not permitted to use animals for testing cosmetics in a way that causes them pain or suffering. It's not a legitimate purpose. I understand makeup is very important, but it's not as necessary to allow causing pain and suffering to animals. If you want makeup, do it without hurting animals. That's a halakhic requirement. Halakhic authorities are strongly against the sport of hunting. Hunting is not a Jewish sport. It's The idea that you get entertainment from taking lives of animals is something that is antithetical to Jewish values, it's antithetical to the concept of al HaLechai. And there are also very practical mitzvot that go along with owning an animal. <clears throat> for example, Jewish law states, if you own an animal, for example a pet, there are very important mitzvos, you have to be very careful. You have to, first of all, be very careful not to mistreat your animal. Mistreating an animal is a sin. It is a not permissible practice. And by the way, this is something that is well documented in scientific literature. Those who mistreat animals, that is very often a warning signal of deeper emotional problems like you see with Bilaam. I mean, we're clearly meant to see that there is something deficient something unrefined in Bilaam's character that he could act towards his animal this way There's a very practical law that says as follows you are required to feed and water your animal before you yourself eat. That means, practically speaking, every single time you're about to sit down to a meal, you have to make sure that your animal has been fed and watered first. If they need it, <coughs> they come first. That's a that's a a, a, a a practical, applicable law. So all of these things come from this line, according to the Rambam, where Billam says, Chotasi. he realizes, at least he realized, he realizes, I sinned, I violated the prohibition of tab Okay, let's go to number three. I don't know, it strikes me that being uh, mean to animals is a terrible thing, and that's fine. But when he said, I have sinned, isn't his sinning larger than that? Having to do with not listening to God and his instructions, etc.? You're entitled to your opinion? (laughs) But the Rambam is entitled to his opinion. I'm I'm not asserting that that's the only interpretation of those words. I'm just sharing with you the Rambam Maimonides, his opinion was that that was what he was confessing I to. I usually go along with him. <laughs> no, 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 no. Stand up for your own opinion. No, 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 no. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. Okay. Alright, so the way the story unfolds is like this. That um, Bilam goes with these emissaries and Billam is like standing on top of a cliff and down far away in the valley the Jewish people are there so he's looking at them But Bilaam is a prophet. He can only say the words that God tells him to say. And out of his mouth, instead of coming words of... He's not able to say words of curse. And he says, and he turns to the emissaries and he says, there's nothing I can do. God's not giving me any curse words. So they go to another place, maybe from a different vantage point, maybe from a different view, that God will feel differently. Go to a second place. No, it doesn't work. Finally, they come to a place. And at this point, God places words in Balaam's mouth and he speaks them. And they are very, very famous words. God says, page 868, Bottom of the page, passage number two. By Bilam as Einav, and Bilam lifted up his eyes. By Yaris Yisrael Sholken Lishvatav, and he saw in the distance the Jewish people encamped. Patia Lavruak and the spirit of God, the prophetic spirit of God, came upon him. By Yisab Meshalov and he uh, got ready to say his words, and he said, top of the next page, 870. It's kind of a flowery introduction. F- coming, the words of Bilam, etc., etc. Okay, fine, yes. Pasuk number five. Matovu ohalecha Yaakov, Mishkan alsecha Yisrael. Famous words. How beautiful are your tents, Yaakov? Your dwelling places. Israel. You can understand Balak is not so happy at this point because Balak is paying him all this money to curse and out comes a blessing. All right, they're going to have to deal with that. that'll unfold as it unfolds. but these are the famous words that Bilam says about the Jewish people. What does it mean? What is so good about the tents of the Jewish people and the dwelling places of Jacob, the Jewish people? So Rashi says that Billam saw the encampment. And he noticed something very interesting. There were tents. Lots and lots of tents. Every family had a tent. And Billam saw that the door of one tent did not face the door of another tent. Because if it had faced, like if, if your window faces your neighbor's window, so that means you're looking in and you there's a lack of privacy. It's not nice. It's not the right thing. Because if a person doesn't have a feeling of privacy in their own home, they're not able to feel comfortable. They're not able to live their own private life. They're not able to have a strong internal family life. And Balaam saw the Jewish people avoided that. Balaam saw that there was this desire among the Jewish people to live lives where the families were strengthened. So I want to share this with you. I saw this, and I shared this with some of you last year, an insight from Sivan Rahab Meir. And she says that Bilam understood something about the Jewish people in Judaism that is critical. and that is our homes our tents, our dwelling places, our homes is where our Jewish identity is formed. The most critical institution for the Jewish people is not synagogues, it is not Jewish schools, it's not mikvos, it's not any of those things. Those are all important. But they are all secondary to a Jewish home. Because a Jewish home is where you live Judaism. The way that you act in your dining room is more a reflection of your Jewish identity than the way that you act in shul. And it's not only your dining room, it's your playroom. I spoke about this recently in shul. The way that we go about our private time, the way that we go about our leisure, says something very important about our values. And it's not only our living room. It's also our bedroom. The way that we act in private towards each other. The way that husbands and wives treat each other with respect in private. That is what creates strong families. And it is only through strong families that we can pass on Jewish identity. And so Bilam understood this magnificent secret of the Jewish people. And he said, Matovu Ahalecha Yaakov, this is the greatest thing about you. That your tents and dwelling places are beautiful and good, and they allow for the creation of strong families. Now, but let me ask one more question. So we started off this evening talking about blessings and curses. I made the point, you're welcome to disagree, that blessings and curses are forms of prayers. Billam was supposed to curse, but he ended up blessing. But let me ask you a question. What is a blessing? What What is a bracha? I'll tell you what I think a bracha is. If, if I want to give you a bracha, I want to give you a bracha, you're not feeling well, you should have a refuah shlema. Hashem should heal you. I want to give you a bracha that it, it, you're, you're having a problem uh, uh, finding a mate in life. I want to give you a bracha, you should find a good shidduch. I want to give you a bracha, Hashem should bless you with parnasa. Those are brachos. How are the words... That Billam said a bracha, "Matovu alecha Yaakov, your tents are very beautiful." It sounds more like a description. A bracha to me seems like I'm wishing something. I'm praying to God that you should have something or you should do something. Billam's words sound more like a description. I like the, your architecture, right? I like the way you build your houses. Okay, that's a nice. Observation, but how is it called a bracha? So I want to share with you an insight. I've shared it before in a different context that comes from Rabbi Samsel And this is such an important insight, especially for raising children, but under all circumstances. Rosh Hashem says the greatest bracha that you can give someone is when you convey to that person that you understand who they are. If you can convey to a person that I get you, I understand you, I recognize your strengths and your weaknesses, there is no greater bracha than that. There is no greater way to build a person than to be able to say, I get you, I understand you. When Billam says, Matovu ahalecha Yaakov, what he is saying is, I understand what makes the Jewish people so strong. I understand what makes the Jewish people so special. I understand you. I'm looking at you, I'm watching, and I understand. And based on Rav Shamsha Hirsch's insights, there could be no greater bracha than for Bilam to say, accurately, you know what makes the Jewish people special? Look at their families. That's what makes the Jewish people special. Okay, that's the first level. I'm going to try to finish the next two levels quickly. So the first level, Matovo Yaakov, how beautiful are your tents, the way your families are set up family life is strong. Very nice. Our rabbis say there's a deeper interpretation. Matovu Ahalecha Yaakov Ahalecha refers to the Ohel, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, the sanctuary that the Jewish people built in which to serve God that traveled along with them in the Midbar, in the desert, and for the first 400 years that they were in Israel. And Mishkanosecha, which is plural, your dwelling places, plural, refers to the first base of Migdash and the second base of Migdash. The first base of Migdash was built, lasted for about 400 years, was destroyed by the Babylonians, was rebuilt for the second base of Migdash, that lasted for about 400 years, and that was destroyed by the Romans. In these words, Bilam is prophesying that just as there is a Mishkan now for the Jewish people, there will be a base of Migdash, it will be destroyed, and it will be rebuilt. In other words, the deeper level of what Bilaam was saying is I am prophesizing that even though that sanctuary you have is going to be taken away from you, I'm telling you now, it's going to be rebuilt. And what a strong message, again, that we read this just days before The 17th of Tammuz, beginning this period of three weeks where we commemorate the destruction, where just before it begins we read Bilaam's promise. Yes, it was taken away. Yes, it's been taken away for 2,000 years. It will be rebuilt. How do we know? Bilaam told us. Not only all of our own prophets, even Bilaam told us. (coughs) One more level. One more deeper interpretation. Matovu aholecha Yaakov How beautiful are your tents. Mishkenosecha Literally your dwelling places, but remember the word Mishkenosecha has as its root word the word Shekhinah. The word Shekhinah is the word that refers to God's presence that dwells within us even when the temple is destroyed. In other words, what Bilaam is saying to us is not only you have a sanctuary, it's going to be taken away and it's going to be rebuilt. That's very nice. But what does that mean for the time that we don't have it? It means that we don't have it. We don't have God's presence, God forbid. No. This means a deeper level. You have a sanctuary, which is the clear and open relationship between God and the Jewish people, but but Balaam tells us even when it's taken away, even when it's destroyed, even when it looks like there's not a relationship, no. God's Shekhinah is still there. The relationship is still there. Through maybe not sacrifices through prayer. The relationship is still there. And so what Bilaam is promising to the Jewish people is this lesson that there will be times in your history where your relationship with God will be clear and overt and visible, tangible, and there will be periods where you go through a dark period in history where it will not be clear, where it will not be tangible or visible. But don't think that God. Don't think, God forbid, that God has forsaken us. God is still there. The Mishkan Osecha, the Shechina of God, is there. <laughs> Lastly, of course, there is the last interpretation of these words: "Matovu Ahalecha Yaakov." How beautiful are your tents, referring to your synagogues, Mishkan Osecha, Israel your Jewish schools how beautiful are your synagogues and Jewish schools that's the reason that on the front of our building is written these words over the front door Yaakov, asach Yisrael, asserts the beauty and the meaning of our synagogues and our Jewish schools not as important as the Jewish family but still very very important and very, very beautiful. So those are layers of different, different layers of meaning of the words that Bilaam ultimately said, not because he wanted to, but that's what God told him to say, and he did actually say those words. And we should take meaning and significance and comfort from the words that Bilaam said in our honor. I wish you all a great Shabbos. Now I know why you don't want to...